be here, and I actually will be planting a church with a core team, most leaving from Louisville, some from other cities, some in the city of Birmingham already. It's been a long, fun interview process getting to know people. But one of the things I want to combat when we go there is this disease that is throughout the American church. People have asked me, why Birmingham? And I tell them, why Birmingham? Because, well, people would be quick to say they're a Christian. If you ask them a single detail about God or the gospel, they could tell you nothing about him or his message, other than their grandmother went to church, or that they were baptized at a church when they were young, but they no longer attend or are a part of things. In a lot of ways, it's no different than Southern Ohio and Hillbilly Elegy or something like that, that there's this vague cultural identity to Christianity but very little Christ. And this disease that moves throughout the American church, a Harvard professor named Marshall uh, Gans, he has a somewhat famous quote that highlights the disease. And he says, abstraction is the enemy of meaning. Abstraction is the enemy of meaning. And what he means, without definition, without specifics, without knowledge of the actual thing... To live a life in abstraction is to never have meaning, that the details matter. We see this in our real life is not abstraction. We see this in a marriage. You don't get married to a man in general. You don't get married to a woman in general. Or if you do, you won't be married very long, okay? We must love specific people that have names and stories and bodies and souls. We marry actual people with specifics. You cannot have a relationship without knowledge and depth with that person, or else it's superficial at best, or a fake, or a fraud at worst. And what we see in this text is this idea that people can live with an abstract God, but our God has revealed himself to us. He's given us specifics about who he is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do, so that you can have a real relationship with God. That's not vague, that's not a patchwork quilt of sayings you've heard or things your grandmother did or things that you read in a book once or pop culture wins. You can have a relationship with the actual living God who created the entire universe, saving it through Jesus Christ and taking us somewhere to be with him forever. And this text gives those details. And think about an adoption. Raise your hand if you've ever adopted or journeyed alongside a couple or family adopting. We're going to be a little interactive in this sermon. A couple hands, seen it happen, been around it. And you've seen the excitement in a couple that, that, to adopt it all. There's a love that just says that moves them to action, to raise the money, to, to fill out the forms, to take the next steps. But man, there's an insurgence of love in their life as soon as they know a name. As soon as they know a country or a birth mother or a city. As soon as they know a gender, as soon as they see a picture or an ultrasound or whatever it is, and you see that love that had started start to pull out of abstraction and every little detail is treasured. And it starts to grow and grow all the way up to the moment that they see this child or they pick them up or they meet this young man or young woman and they embrace them or go on the first walk or eat the first dinner and they become part of the family. And all the time their love starts exploding as their knowledge goes deeper in the person. It's because it's tough to love someone in abstract. 
But when you know the curves and the contours, the details of a person, your love grows so rich and so deep. The people you care about most are not abstract people you've never met on another continent. They're the people you know most. And in some ways, this is common sense, but man, it's not common practice. Because when it comes to God, we kind of go, well, you know, he's big. I'm not God. He is. But we don't latch on to the details. And if you're going to love God with your whole heart, with your whole mind, with your whole body, with your whole strength, with all of your joy and all of your life and all of your skills, then you're going to have to know God. And this text helps us get there. This text takes our God out of abstraction. Look at verses 28 and 29 at the end of chapter 2. And it says, And now, little children, abide in him. And abide means to live or dwell with him. Abide means to sit around a table. It's an earthy word that means you're in relationship with these people as if you're doing family life or maybe are doing family life together. So Christian, get so close to your father Get so close to your Father God so that when God appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Jesus and shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We were not meant to be saved and then forgotten. We were not meant to be redeemed and then lost to abstraction. You were meant to know God. Adam and Eve in the garden were meant to be known and know God. It says that they held hands, basically, and walked around in the cool of the eve with God. Every human that's ever been born or had breath on this earth was meant to know and abide with God. That is what we're redeemed to. We're not just forgiven from our sins and forgotten. We were meant to be relationship, to have life with God again. You were meant to abide, church. And when you abide, two things happen. It gives you confidence for your life. So that when you know Jesus, when you know the details of God, suddenly you have confidence, not just for the one day as it mentions, but Jesus could come back any day. And so therefore you have confidence for your whole life. To know God gives you reasons for confidence to live out your life. And it also makes you holy. It is 100% tied. If you want to grow in your faith, that you must abide in God. There is no other way. Jesus puts it in John 15, as you, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We were meant to be an abiding person. A.W. Tozer, a theologian from Canada, said that the most important thing you'll ever think is what comes to mind when you think of God. And he's right. And over the next 10 verses, I want to fill that in for us. I want us to build a word picture in our mind of who this Trinitarian God is. This one God in three persons. And be as specific as this text is to start saying, I want to know the God of the Bible. And this is what he's like. Everything in 1 John up to chapter 3, John just keeps saying, you need to know God. You need to know God. You need to know God to confess your sin. You need to know God to love your brothers. You need to know God to resist the world. You need to know God to know that he's the propitiation or the sacrifice for your sin. And now he's going to turn and say, okay, this is what God's actually like. This is the God you can know. Look with me in verse 1 through 3. And this is the Father's love that makes us, that makes us his children. It says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. 
Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. What kind of love does God love us with? What kind of love is this? It's a perfect love that sacrifices himself for us. It's the love you've been looking for your whole life. That you hear echoes in your romantic love. You hear echoes in a parent-child love. You hear echoes in fulfilling work. You feel echoes in these friendships of meaning. But it's the love we've been built to know. It's this love that sacrifices himself on behalf. It's a love that never gives up. It's a love that we don't earn or deserve but comes to us through the person and work of Jesus. It's a love that grows and comes and never lets us down and always comes through. It's unlike human love in that way. It's a love that abounds and is perfect. But many of us would raise our hands and say, yeah, I'm a child of God. Even, even secular-ish people would say, oh, yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I kind of know God. There's a God out there. But very few of us would be able to say, I'm God's child because of his active, ongoing, perfect, beautiful love flowing down to me through my life. Many of us would stumble to say, the reason I'm a child of God is I believe in my heart of hearts and the quiet on my pillow or in the morning over my coffee that I'm relishing the active love of God in my life. Not what he did one time when you were kneeling, but what he's doing in your life today. See, we live spiritually insecure lives. The default for most of us would say, yeah, I'm a child of God, and then run through life as a spiritually insecure person. We leave the gospel of God's love to go back to trying to earn or deserve God's favor, or just run around trying to find love wherever it seems to be. And we end up living as these unloved children. It's not the reality with God, but it's the reality we live. And you can look at study after study, a child that grows up unloved, unconvinced of its parents or authority figures love in their life, goes up to be an insecure person that in turn hurts people wherever they go because of a deep insecurity in their life. And if that's you, man, my heart goes out to you. I grew up, too, in a broken home. Things were strange at best, chaotic at worst, and it was not always clear people's love for me and how that worked. And I see that, that we live spiritually insecure lives that we're like, yeah, I know, God loves me. I know Jesus did it. Man, that's amazing. Except I run around like this. And you can just flip the inverses of all these verses. There's three ways you can tell if you suffer from spiritual insecurity. And the first one is this. We can tell we live spiritually insecure lives when we struggle that the world doesn't get us. That we beat ourselves or get down or get frustrated when the world doesn't understand the way you live or what you do. That you choose not to have sex before you're married or you choose not to get intoxicated or you choose vocations that aren't of the highest price but seem to have the deepest purpose in your life. When the world doesn't get us and you grow insecure or you feel yourself striving to meet the world's accepted standards instead of resting in the fact that the world didn't get Jesus either. That's what verse 1 tells us. We don't have to be understood because Jesus understands us. We follow a misunderstood Jesus, so of course we're going to be misunderstood. The second way you can see and tell that you're living a spiritually insecure life is when you obsess about the end times. Look with me again at verse 2. Verse 2 shares that one day we will meet God, which means instead of obsessing about the when and the how and the where, we should rest secure 
because we already have the who. The when, the how, the where, the prophecy books, all that doesn't matter because you know the who. You know the Jesus who's actually coming back. And it's a mark of our insecurity to obsess about the future or end times in a way that's unhealthy and unbiblical rather than resting in the who of a God who's actually coming for you that you'll meet face to face. And the third way you can see you're living a spiritually insecure life is whenever we worry about not being enough. Whenever you worry about not being good or holy enough to meet Jesus. Whenever you find yourself worried and troubled that, you can't, that you're not growing fast enough spiritually. Because instead of trusting that God is the God of my sanctification, instead of trusting that God is a God we can work with to become more like Christ, we try to take over the captain of the ship and define what spiritual growth looks like for us instead of submitting to a God who loves to grow us. One day, in verse 2 and 3, we see we will be like Him. And we will know him by we are like him. And that God is purifying all who are trust in Christ. If we look at verse 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, we see that the will of God is this, your sanctification, or the process of you becoming more like God, or process of you becoming holy. And he names the first one as sexual immorality, but it goes into all spheres of life. And people say, well, why do you put that at the top? Because that one's so deep and intimate to us. It is a wildly shaping intimate relationship of how we handle our bodies and spirits and our sexuality. And so that's a place where God often starts. And someone can ask, like, well, if you're saying God's the master of my growth, God's the master of my sanctification, does that mean growing spiritually would be like laying on a beach? Does that mean growing spiritually requires no effort? And the answer would be no. In the scriptures, there's 140 times where someone repents. There's 140 depictions of what repentance looks like in the scriptures. God is only mentioned in six of them. Does that mean God's not at work in our repentance? That God's not at work in our growth? Absolutely not. But it does mean that all of our repentance is going to feel like active obedience, because it is. You are the main character in that story. Jesus is working and growing, but your repentance will feel like you repenting. There is no passive growth, but it's a God who's empowering and guiding you towards what holiness will be. And the Father's love, it makes us as children, but look, it goes further, because it's the Son that works to save us. Look at verse 4, 4 through 8. It says, the Son works to save us. And this is taken out of abstract into reality. we got a God who makes us, a Son who saves us. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins, and that in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen Him or known Him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil is sinning from the beginning. And the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We don't save ourselves any more than we make ourselves God's children. Once again, this is God working on your behalf through Christ, that he would save us and make us. And Christ has two works in this text. 
The first work is this. You see in verse 4, there is sin that separates us from God. He calls it lawlessness. And lawlessness here is not the lawlessness that Paul refers to as us not obeying the law. Lawlessness here refers to a person who has rejected the authority of God altogether in this world and in their life and lives as a rebel before God. Whenever we even dip our toe into sin, we become this lawless person, this outsider to the kingdom, this outsider to God, that we are choosing active rebellion over what would be glad submission to God. And it makes our sin not just a small problem, but an entire state of being that is a huge problem before God. A problem that God willingly solves. As you see in verse 5, it says that Jesus, this pure Jesus, is the one who takes away our sins. Only someone who is never lawless, but completely obedient to God, could die in our place. And He dies for us. He takes away our sin. Therefore, in verse 6 we see, therefore we must leave our life of sin, because sin is insanity when we know Jesus properly. Sin becomes insanity if you know Jesus properly because Jesus knows everything. There's nothing hidden from him. Our sins will never be uh, somewhere where he can't see them or know them or feel them. Our sins are insane because Jesus is the judge, that Jesus is coming back. And that's the negative side of this. But on the positive side, sin is insanity because Jesus died for you and loves you and is not giving up on you. In fact, he weeps at your sins, forgives them, and asks you to come closer and deeper. Come out of abstraction, my son or daughter, and come know me personally. Make your sin feel insane because you abide with me. If you abide with me and you dwell with me and you turn your attention to me and you're attentive to me in your spiritual disciplines, in your common and daily life, in the works of a church like this, make your sin feel as insane as it is. Don't follow the ways of the world and excuse it or hide it or act like it's not a big deal, but instead mortify or kill your sin by saying, this is insane. Why would I go on being the most destructive force in my own life? See, our sins have a destructive force to all of the relationships around us. It's like in having spiritual cancer and spreading it as we refuse to repent. And as the patterns sink in, the sick, sicker we get. In Alcoholics Anonymous, they say, you're as, you're as sick as your secrets. And the same goes for us spiritually. If we persist in sin, as it says to go on sinning, it means we are believing the lies of the devil. That it's not a big deal, and we're dealing with a God of abstraction who doesn't dwell in us and doesn't dwell with us. It makes our sin insane when we look God face to face. There's no reason we would even want to sin as we delight in God. But it shows the distance, the lawlessness that still lives in our heart even as we believe that we must subdue and bring to our Lord and Savior. See, the devil has been sinning since the beginning. It's who he is. That's what verse 8 says. It says the devil is the one who's been sinning since the beginning. And the trick of the devil is this. His main work in verse 7 is to deceive you. He wants wrong to seem right. He wants God to seem bad when he's good. He wants the Savior to seem abstract or maybe for somebody else instead of a Jesus who died for you. Instead of a God who makes you his child. Instead of a Jesus, who works both to save us and 
The second work of Christ in this text is to destroy the works of the devil. And Jesus wants to destroy the works of the devil everywhere, whether, it, whether it's a crushing poverty, whether it's a work of human trafficking, whether it's a work of murder, whether it's a work of defrauding through Wall Street. No matter what it is, the, de- the Lord is on a work to destroy all the works of the devil, but he wants to start with us. See, every sin means our complicitness with the devil, that we have taken the lie, that we've become like Adam and Eve and taken the apple. We've chosen the deception. We've chosen the delusion. We've divorced from reality. And it says the Lord wishes to destroy the works of the devil, and he means to start with me and to take a wrecking ball to my patterns of sin in my heart, that he wants to make us new, not just by saving us, but then doing a demolition to all the darkness for the rest of our life that we would become more and more kingdom people, people of Jesus, kingdom where we have a good king in Jesus instead of a slave master in the devil who wishes to enslave you with sin forever. So Jesus comes to deliver us from sin and defeat Satan That is his works to save us. The Father makes us the Son. He saves us. And I hope this is starting to give some specifics. We say Trinity and we gloss over. We say the Father made us because he loves us. The Son saves us by his works, both saving us on the cross and defeating the devil. Suddenly, hopefully, the Trinity pulls closer and deeper and gives you specifics of a God to actually know. And last we see the last member of the Trinity, the final person, the Spirit's birth changes us. Look at verse 9 and 10 with me. It says, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. Woo! For God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep sinning because he's been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And so it's important. There's a lot going on in this text. Some have said verse 9 is the scariest verse in the Bible, and it very well may be. But it's good we have a proper understanding of it as God's people in the specifics. The seed of God is a reference to the Spirit of God taking up residence in you at belief. The seed of God is the Spirit of God taking up residence in a sinner's heart and beating new life of grace, new spiritual life of you literally starting your resurrection from the dead right now in this life from the inside out. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 is a wonderful place to go to see more of how that works. And the Spirit of God comes and starts to abide with you. Your abiding, in one way, isn't totally up to you. God takes the initiative to take up residence and start a home life in your heart with you. And when we give that active attention, that attentive way back to God, that's when we're truly abiding. And verse 9 says that we don't go on making a practice of sinning. And that's because the seed is in us that won't let us. No Christian continues the same patterns of sinning once they become aware of them for long. It starts to work out of our life. If we're listening to God, it hits us like a ton of bricks in conviction. Ever feel like a tidal wave of conviction hit you? Like you leave a party and you get in your car and you're like, what did I say to that person? 
You know, and you're like, man, I got to call them or text them or go back into the party, right? You ever had a ton of conviction hit you to where you just start to weep? You ever been singing a song in church and then suddenly you're like, oh man, I've been a fraud. I need to go confess. I need to go talk to someone. I need to do it now. But if we're not listening to God, it might feel like a rock in your shoe. You ever been hiking and get a rock in your shoe? You can ignore it for a while, but eventually you're going to have to take off your hiking boots. You can't just walk for miles with a rock in your shoe without getting blisters and being miserable and literally ruining everything about your experience. And the same for the Christian life. If you keep the practice of sinning, if you don't let the Spirit fully convict you that leads to confession and repentance and all that good stuff, you might need community, you might need therapy, you might need a lot of things depending what the sin is, where it comes from, how it works, but a Christian doesn't keep the rock in a shoe forever. The Christian no longer makes a practice of sinning. He gives up the lifestyle. When he becomes or she becomes aware they start to say no to sin and say yes to Lord Jesus, and they trust God's grace to make it so. And as Christian maturity happens, remember, it's like a seed. Anyone plant a seed in their garden in the spring here? No one has gardens. Okay, a couple gardens. You're like, no, no gardening at Veritas. None. Uh, yes, we're pro-gardening. Hey, so a seed goes into a soil. Not much happens that day. You don't see the plant. It doesn't happen unless you got some miracle seeds, okay? You need to be patient. It's a seed. It germinates. It starts to sprout. That happens underneath the soil. It pops over the top of the soil, and you see something very small. That's your spiritual life. And I know sometimes we see people that it's like, man, God came in our life and everything changed. But that's because they probably gave up a, a sin that was super destructive an affair, an addiction, something that was ruining you, know, maybe an anger problem that was making them rage out and lose friends and family. Yes, they may repent of a big sin that makes their life change because it was so destructive, but they're still spiritual infants because the seed takes time. He doesn't use this flippantly. It takes time to spiritually mature, but just because you're older doesn't mean you're mature. It takes an abiding with God as the measure of your maturity in Christ. Your abiding with Christ is the measure of your maturity in Christ. And so we see, yes, that verse is a scary verse, but we see that it means a Christian doesn't persist in sin forever. They start to fight. And there's a world of difference between a Christian fighting their sin and submitting to Satan. The one who fights their sin lays their knee at the King Lord Jesus and says, help me, help me, church, and can be honest about their struggle. And that is the goal for Veritas or citizens or sojourn or any church to be an entire community of people bound by the truth of Lord Jesus saying, I'm going to fight my sin. I'm going to obey and feel the blessing of God in my obedience, and I'm going to trust and live in the grace of God in the new seed within me, doing battle with first and foremost my heart. And it is the vast difference to submit on to Satan and persist in sin. It's an ocean of difference. And so we see because God has come in the Holy Spirit to live inside us, He makes abiding a reality. And we see verse 10, and I love verse 10, because it says that the Spirit is at work, and we can have confidence for the future, made sure by our changed life now. We can have confidence in the future, made sure 
by our changed life now. We can look at the specifics of this God and gain confidence and to see it play out in our life, to see us pursue a righteous life, to see even righteous deeds start to emerge from our life should give us great hope and confidence that we're not talking in abstract about our spirituality anymore, but something has happened in me and something is producing fruit from me, something that didn't exist before, but now it does. And it becomes an undeniable reality. If you love and serve Jesus, this specific Jesus of the Bible, and you serve him now and you love him now, John is saying, trust me, that's your future. When he comes, you're going to go right on serving him. You're going to go right on loving him. That will be normal. But John is also saying, if you have an abstract Jesus or an abstract God, and to be honest, you don't really know him or serve him, then you certainly don't love or serve him in your life. Then you'd be foolish to have confidence before a coming Christ. How foolish would it be to say, yes, one day I'm really confident about meeting Jesus, even though I don't really know him or serve him now. John just logically pointing out that if you love him now and serve him now, you will rejoice when he comes and you'll know him. If you don't now, don't think it'll be different when you meet Christ himself, for the real Christ is coming. So give yourself patience that fruit takes time. And while it will be evident one day who belongs to God and who does not, we give patience to one another now as we fight to have a specific Jesus. The devil wants you to live in the ditch of abstraction, to be confused, to be deceived, but Jesus wants you to know him personally, deeply and with a love that changes you from the inside out and that's what a specific God does he gives us specific truths about who he is about what he has done what he will do and what he is doing in your life and I want you to think back to adoption with me but this time I want you to realize that God is not like the child really God isn't a child he was briefly one in being born of Mary but God is gigantic. And in that scenario, we're the children. We're the ones that God came and got us. We're the ones that God planned our adoption and has always known the specifics of your life. He's the one that has signed the papers in the Lamb's Book of Life and written your name down before the world was made. That he knew you and he loved you. He got us, he's taken us home. He's made us our children. You have never for one second in your life been abstract to God. He's always known the specifics. He's always loved you from beginning to end. He has known your name before the world began. He formed you himself in your mother's womb. He knows the hairs on your head. He knows every wicked thought and deed you've ever done, and not begrudgingly, but in Jesus's joy, went to win you back at the cross to save you to adopt you, to make you his own. And a pure Jesus for an impure people, to live with God forever, to embrace this God of grace and glory. He doesn't want a relationship that's abstract because he already knows all the details. But he wants you to spend a lifetime knowing the details of him and of an actual relationship with him that's not in theory but in practice, that's not sidelined by your insecurity, but living in the Father's love that's made you his child, not working any longer for the schemes of the devil or living in his deceptions, but listening willingly to a Christ that loves us, not to be bound in the patterns of sin forever, but to let the Spirit see grow up in you.
when one day you meet Jesus face to face, I pray and hope for you and for me, it won't be a mystery. The moment will be momentous, but I hope we greet Jesus as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, but also an old friend that we've been walking with for 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years, that we already know what his voice sounds like in our heart and our mind, that we can relay a lifetime with him, not taken by surprise at who he is, but that you can know God truly in the details, in the specifics, in your life. We serve a real God, not an abstract one, that loves us as we actually are. And I pray these would be reasons for our confidence. Garrison has informed me uh, that y'all are taking time of silence to reflect during this series. There's a lot of big truths all around. So let's enter that silence now and contemplate the words of the scripture. You can read your Bibles, you can pray, but let's take the next couple minutes to be silent and reflect upon the God that loves us in the specifics. <laughs>